0: are you one of those people that has bought an individual stock and now you kind of feel stuck? Or maybe you got sold a loaded mutual fund, you paid a big commission on the front end, and you're like, well, what do I do now? Or, or better yet, what happened if somebody sold you a variable annuity or a cash value life insurance? Or how about even the people you work with, your financial advisors, your CPAs, your insurance agents? All these things are financial follies And traps that we fall into. If you get hit by any of those points I talked about, this show is for you.
1: It's Brian Preston, the money guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes.
0: You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Hey guys, it's your host, Brian Preston. Kind of excited about this, this show today because this is one of those shows where we're going to turn lemons into lemonade. Yep. And and I like that because I think a lot of times in I know in my personal life as well as my personal financial life, you make decisions and and you hope that you're you're betting batting a better than 50% average and getting a better place in life, but every now and then you will step into something and you're trying to figure out okay, now that I'm here what's the, the next step? How do, How I, do I navigate out, out of, yeah. of this? So that's what we're going to be hitting today. Um, I'm going to go through everything we just talked about in the intro, um, but let me go ahead and give you some housekeeping on who we are. This is The Money Guy Show. Feel free to go check us out. It's moneyguy.com. If you want to go check out the show notes, also on The Money Guy website, you can go connect with us on all of our other social media platforms, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, have at it. Also, sign up. Give us your email address just so we can stay in contact with you, so we can blast out whenever we have new content. I'm joined today, of course, as always, I don't know why I say joined just today, but joined probably forever, Mr. Bo Hansen, who sits across the way from me. Um, realize we are fee-only financial advisors by day, so if you like what you hear, if you like how we're just giving it away and trying to take your financial life to the next level, you know, reach out to us because we do work with clients all across the country. I think we're up to 29 states. 29, that's right. So pretty incredible. I mean, I'm looking forward to the day that I get to say all 50 states or maybe I start naming continents that we're working Ooh, with that'd people. that'd fun, right? But, um, I really do appreciate everything that my Money Guy family, all of my listeners, y'all, y'all really powered this thing. And we've got a decade of experience doing this. So thank you for hanging in there with us. Remember, moneyguy.com is your website and, um, we'll get you taken care of. So, but let's just kind of jump into this thing. Okay. I I kind of put these things in 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 an order here, and the first one I had on my list, and and actually, let me hit a pause because the first one is individual stocks. But before I do that, I think there's a key behavioral finance concept we have to talk about with our listeners. Okay. There is, and what's so funny is when I did a Google search on this. You know, Google and me are becoming friends. By the way, <laughs> another cool thing I realized about the new iPhone upgrade, I know I don't know how I transitioned from Google to iPhone and Apple, but, um, you know, I told you it was creepy that it knew where I was going when I got in my car. It tells me how long it's going to take right. me to get to work. I had a phone call today from somebody who I know, but I didn't have their phone number in my system. The new Apple operating system upgrade, underneath the phone number, wrote maybe and then had the person's name. So I thought it might have been that person. Yeah, because I guess in an email that that person had written me or something, that cell phone number was somewhere in something that's on my phone, and it was smart enough that it kind of put two and two together and said this, and sure enough, it was that person. So kind of creepy. So certainly this is not artificial intelligence, but it it's awfully intuitive. Well, way too much of a sidebar. Apple just bought two artificial intelligence companies in the last two weeks, three weeks. Really? Yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're trying to kick Siri up a notch, but I I just want to share that creepy, but really cool. Creepy, but cool. But here we go. Jumping into this, this behavioral finance concept of sunk cost fallacy. Um, what sunk cost fallacy is, is that I think we, all have a risk aversion. Nobody likes to put money into something and then lose it. If you think about it, and believe me, I don't think investing is gambling, but I want to give you kind of something you can put in your mind as a concept to understand. If you're playing a poker game, there's a a, a saying that you're pot committed. And what that means is somebody who's betting in a poker pot will sometimes have so much money out there in the pot that they'll say that they're pot committed. That means that they have let the sunk costs, what they put out there in the pot, now driving their behavior where they're committed no matter what because of what they've invested. That's a bad thing. And here's why is because realize sunk costs is money you'll never get back. It really shouldn't even come into consideration for your behavior. What should come into consideration is future and ongoing or current and ongoing expenses or how this impacts you. Those are the variables that should play into your decision-making. But we're wired as... emotional creatures, that we screw it all up. And And we allow
1: that to affect the way that we make future financial decisions based on the way we made our past financial decisions.
0: And a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about today are all that a lot of businesses are built upon you being pot committed, that you have invested this money and now they know you're not going to walk away from it because you feel like you have to get your money back. I mean, I remember, Bo, we picked up a client a number of years ago. (laughs) <laughs> That's probably going on a decade, too. And when he was a prospect, he told me his advisor, and he really believed this. I had to convince him that this is not the way to look at money. His advisor had said he had never lost him any money. Meanwhile, I got the account statement, and everything he owned was down between 5 to 10%. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean you haven't lost any money? I mean, I'm looking at your account statement right now. You are off 5 to 10% depending upon which individual stock we look at. He goes, no, my, my advisor has shared with me that as long as we don't sell. Never lost any money. We have not lost any money because (laughs) that money's coming back. And I, (laughs) it's brilliant. I mean, that is, but truthfully, that is not true. I told, I, it took me a while to educate him that no, you look at your account statement on January 1st. You look at it on December 31st. If it's worth more. You made money. money. (laughs) You made money. If it's worth less, you did lose money because if you sold it or even if you didn't sell it, you have less purchasing power than you yep. did at starting a day one. So I wanted to tell you about that behavioral concept. Sunk cost is something you need to go ahead and start conditioning your brain to work past that bias, and we all have it. So just I, I tell you that. So we'll jump into number one. The first thing I have is individual stocks. Oh. And I, I put on my bedroom voice because individual so- stocks – they're sexy.
1: They are a sexy animal.
0: They and, and here's why individual stocks are so sexy. Get to go to a Christmas party. Somebody says, "What you been doing?" You know how, you, how are things going. And somehow it always comes into money. You know right. yep. it, it, it does crack me up socially. How fast will people ask you what you do for a living? And then sometimes you get into talking about stocks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's so funny. I got Apple. I got Google. Bought some Tesla. Tesla. There's a, there's a sexy one. Whoo. That's got a little sizzle <laughs> just saying it, you know, and it, the company, who cares about making money anymore? It's about whoo. That sizzle. So that's the allure of these stocks. It's the big score. And it's so funny. There's a cool, I mean, and I got, I got totally, we, we got a, a shout out from one of our listeners. He's also a friend of the show, but James gave me a website that w- if you go to this website, just know 20 to 30 minutes of your life is going to just disappear. So let me go and give you the website and you can go let time disappear from you. It's Stock Chalker. It's S T O C K and then C H O K E R. Stockchalker.com. Yeah. If you go to that website, it's really simple. You're going to put in a stock symbol or a mutual fund symbol, you know, any type of investment that's been around. Um, all, you can go all the way back to 1996 to now. You put in the stock symbol or the stock name. You put in the date that you're interested in. And then you put how much you've invested. And then you hit enter, and it's going to pop out how much it would be worth.
1: And let me go ahead and allow you to peep into your future. You're probably going to go put the day you graduated from high school or college. You're going to go put in your birthday. You're going to go put in your anniversary. You're going to put in all these crazy dates because that's just what you do. And it's really kind of remarkable to see what the last 20 years in the stock market has done for
0: different individual stocks. Yeah, I, I wrote down a whole bunch of them because it was – I did exactly – because what I did was I wanted to see how far back the data went. So it goes back to January 1st of 1996. I was like, 1996? Hey, that's about the time. I was coming out of University of Georgia. So let's go play around. Like I had a 1000 bucks after graduation. What would a $1,000 have turned into – And it was kind of interesting. The first thing I put in was like the S&P 500. Okay. If you'd have just put $1,000 in the S&P 500 back in January 1st of of 1996, um, it'd be worth about $4,500. Oh, wow. So, I mean, a thousand, you know, 450% rate of return. Okay. Here's the one, and this is why people like the sexy stocks. Apple. Okay. You put in Apple, $1,000, 1996. It's now worth $102,000. Holy cow. But that's where, because GE, if you want to know the biggest by market cap company in the United States in 1996, it was General Electric. So you're like, wow, the greatest. And by the way, do you know what the biggest market cap company in the United States is right now? Uh my guess would be Apple. Yeah, well it well I had the list as of 2013 on this website. So but I'm assuming yes the answer is still Apple because of their success. So you could think about this cuz back in 1996 GE Jack Welch I mean dominating, I mean just completely Handed dominating. Everything. So you put in GE, you have to put yourself in that mindset. 3966 dollars didn't do as good as the S&P 500. So it underperformed Apple by just an unbelievable margin, but
1: it even unperformed, uh, underperformed just buying the index.
0: Yeah, but but realize Apple was not even in the top 10 of the S&P 500 in 1996. Huh. It's not in there. I mean, it, it's just not. So to think that you can buy into I would make the analogy it's probably better to consider that Apple will be more like GE going forward, meaning right. that if we look at this 20 years in the future, Apple might not do as well as the S&P 500. Sure. Because it's a, it's a, it's the biggest company. And realize growth rates are much easier when you're a small company than they are when you're the biggest com- com- company in the United States. Um, I thought it was interesting. Coca-Cola. How many times have we heard Warren Buffett say, no matter what happens in the world financially, people are always going to be willing to take a little bit of their time of work to go buy things like Coke. And that's right. why he puts Coca-Cola kind of in his permanent portfolio. It underperformed the S&P 500, um, it worth $3,474. I mean, there were some that out- outperformed. You could look in um some, some Johnson & Johnson did well. Disney stock has done well. Sure. Um, but then there's a big losers. I mean, stocks that you'd actually done poorly on, like Ford. Ford, if you put a $1,000 in, it'd be worth 2364 Yes, you made money. Not a But ton. over 20 years, that's not a lot of money. Same thing, Bank of America. Bank of America... Basically broke even for you because you put a thousand in; it's worth one thousand five hundred forty nine dollars. I'm pretty sure that didn't keep pace with inflation, right? So that's the, you're noticing that these are all household companies. And when I looked at the the top ten of the of, of in 1996 of the S and P 500, and then I said, "Well, did it do as good as just buying the S and P 500?" It was about a 50-50 shot, right? Just looking at that, just looking at the top ten, and then when you look at the top holdings of 2013, you notice a lot of those companies that were in the top 10 in 1996 now are no longer even in the top 10 of 2013. I mean, you don't see IBM in the top holdings anymore of the S&P 500 um, for like the top 10. I mean, it, it is interesting how things have shifted around, and that is where the problem for individual stocks comes. It's um, There's multiple things. There's the timing of making decisions, because... If you buy a great stock, you have the problem of trying to get out of the break. G- great stock. Right. When do you get out of it? But it's just as bad when you buy a horrible stock. When do you get out of that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that the world moves really too fast to be buying a bunch of individual stocks. And and here's the other thing that I talk about just with my own personal experience. I have bought individual stocks. I feel like I'm at a reform <laughs> group meeting when I say hey, that. Hey, Brian. Yeah, I, I have bought individual stocks, but here's the problem I have with it. Even though... I've never owned enough individual stocks that they were the majority of my net worth. They did take over the majority of my mind on bad days, meaning that I had a, I had a love affair with Apple stock back in 2008 all the way through probably 2011, 2012. Made great money, but the days that Apple stock was off 2% or 3%, I was probably a horrible husband and father. I would go home and I'd be mad. You know, I'd be want to kick dirt like a a bad baseball coach, you know, yelling at a a referee. I mean, I was just – it impacted my emotionality. Sure. That's not good. And I I think that's the problem. There needs to be a disconnect. Investing is a tool. It's not supposed to be an emotional high. That's gambling when you're going for emotional highs. Investing is a tool. It's not for the emotion of the event. And and I I think that's something that you have to really look at as a problem. And so we've talked about why picking
1: individual stocks is just kind of a hard thing to do in general. But what if you are someone and you have an individual stock position, and one of two things has happened. Maybe you did buy Apple in 1996, and you have this huge embedded gain in it. Uh, When when do you sell it? Um, Or what if you're someone who bought a dog of a stock, or maybe you bought Apple at the highest price ever, and you've lost a lot of money. Do you have to kind of hang in that stock and wait for it to recover? How do you make the decision on how do I move forward out of an individual stock or away from an individual stock decision?
0: Yeah, I think if I've got the dog, let's take the dog first. Realize that's a sunk cost. You take a really hard look at that individual company. And when you realize it's not a great company. But maybe, if I wrote
1: it down, I have to write it back up, don't I?
0: No. I think you you don't take – you could sell that and then – probably get a better rate of return on a on i like buying an index i mean buy the s p 500 or something like that tied into your total diversified portfolio that's probably better advice tied into your goals for your age what you want to do have everything working together instead of having this disjointed bunch of individual stocks that you know looked sexy at the time Um, if it's a great company You know, come up with a plan because, believe me, I understand taxes take a big impact and a big effect on your future value of your holdings. So, by all means, come up with a plan. Maybe go figure out where you're, you know, how close you are to certain things. Realize I recognize the capital gains tax rates on the long-term side is lower, but it still does play into some of your exemptions, your, your deductions, and so forth. So, come up with a plan on how you're going to diversify. I don't like just my rule of thumb is I don't like individuals to have more than 5% of their portfolio in one individual stock. And, and I think that's probably a key thing that you can probably internalize and try to figure out if, that's, if that hits you. Because you, you just have too much risk involved by having that much in, in, in one stock. Um, I wanted to share a value-add moment, too, is that we do have a number of our listeners that become clients that work for great S and P 500 type companies, and they get employee stock purchase plans. Oh, where yeah. really cool benefit where the employer will come in and say, "Guess what? We're going to you know, price the stock fifteen percent lower either at the beginning of the quarter or the end of the quarter. So it's always going to be fifteen percent cheaper than market. Um, we'll let you buy this many shares, this percentage of your your you know salary, your or- salary into it." I'm not. Don't hear me and say, "Oh, Brian's saying I should not do that because he doesn't like individual stocks." By all means, take advantage of that plan that your employer is offering but you heard the word plan mm-hmm. so that's what you might want to you know come up with a plan which where you're either liquidating it every year and you've got a rotation essentially a ladder of shares that are available to to diversify out of and you've done it in a tax smart way or even better you know maybe that is a time when you bring in you go pro and and get somebody to help you out on managing because if you've got employee stock purchase plan you probably got stock options or restricted units there's probably more stuff going on that sure. you need to make sure you're doing a good job with. Let's move on to number two. Okay. The Loaded Mutual Fund.
1: Oh, yeah. This is a fun one. And we see, how often do we see this, Brian? We, I feel like all the time we get someone who comes to us and they've either uh, worked with a previous advisor, they have a portfolio that, that they're currently in, and they say, oh, well.
0: Yeah, I like playing the swami. What I mean by that is that it's so funny. I was at a grill out fireworks or something like that and um if somebody tells me who they're working with i can usually guess what their which funds like. which funds they have because there are certain broker dealers that only use certain funds and and i always it cracks me up cuz they and i'm not going i'm not going to say names because sure. i don't want to pick on any specific but a lot of broker-dealers, if you tell me the name of the broker-dealer you're working with, I can tell you the portfolio you have. And that that's counterintuitive to me where a lot of the stuff we try to do is custom. and um, But it's one-size-fits-all uh, with some of these, these sure. people. But let's talk about the fact. Here's what I don't – and I worked on the commission side. So I, I feel like I have a very good understanding because I was a registered rep for a number of years before. I I, I went to the good side of the force and um became a fee-only financial advisor. But you have to understand the alphabet soup of share classes. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys, for a lot of these things, whether it's individual stocks, whether it's talking about variable annuities, whether it's talking about mutual funds, the SEC has a great website for the individual investor. They have all these little um pamphlets or other little handouts and, and publications that you can go pull off of their website that are just top-notch. I found myself going... Man, the SEC did a great job because they'll have all these caution key points that you just need to be skeptical when somebody's trying to sell you something. So let's, uh, let's talk about what I mean by share class. When you're dealing with loaded funds, commission funds, they'll be the, the primary ones you hear about are A shares, B shares, C shares. And then there's all kind of others, N shares, Y shares, I shares for institutional usually. But A, B, and C are usually the first ones that you need to understand. The A class, here's what, the way they'll offer this an a share will typically have a commission on the front end meaning you give them a hundred dollars ninety five to ninety seven of the dollars actually get invested because three to five percent or five point seven five percent for one of the bigger funds that's out there will go to pay commissions to the person that sold it to you so that's considered the front end load but they'll tell you hey we it has a higher commission on the front end but the good news is because you pay the higher commission, you get lower internal expenses on your portfolio okay. ongoing. And then they go to B shares. B shares won't have that front end commission. So you give give an advisor hundred dollars, all one hundred gets invested. It does, but there's there's a little give. The internal expense is usually sick. I mean, it's like I'm talking about. When, it's not uncommon to see internal expenses greater than one and a half percent. I've even seen internal expenses over two percent. That means every year the ongoing cost of that portfolio is one and a half to two percent every year. And then here's the, here's the rub. What if you decide you don't like the fund anymore? If you go outside the fund family, they have a deferred sales charge. That's where the commission comes in. And it could be seven percent, it could be six percent, five percent. I mean, but, and it fades out over years. That's, That's something, because um, we talk about it, Bo. What, what if you have, and fortunately, I'll go ahead and tell you guys, B-shares are starting to become extinct. You don't see them being sold anymore. But unfortunately, we still have people come to us that still have B-shares grandfathered into their portfolio. And this is why we do did a show like this is because you're stuck. Now what? I mean, what's the next step? And if you are one of those people that owns B-shares, you probably need to figure out where you are on that graduated scale of the fu- of the fees going away because if you're close to being done, you might want to wait it out. I mean, you really might. It depends upon really how bad those internal expenses are and how bad the investments are within the portfolio. But if they're okay, you might want to wait it out because the good news is B shares do convert to A shares typically, and then you can have the potential to make that the moment you diversify out of it. But So you do need to do some research and homework to understand. And then the next fun class is the C share. The C share, I think, was meant to be an answer to you know registered investment advisors and people who are doing wrap accounts and fee only financial planning because what they did on C shares was they said okay we're not going to charge a front end commission we're not going to charge even a back end commission but we're going to put a very large internal expense ratio that pays there's going to be a fee that's paid out to the advisor from that and you know i guess that's the best in some degree but if you look at the ongoing carrying costs it could get pretty, pretty expensive, expensive. And here's what we, we wanted to tell you. If you go to a website like Morningstar.com, here's the advice I'd give. If you've got a bunch of commission funds and you just want to know where you stand with it, go to Morningstar.com just so you first get an understanding of what those internal expenses are. Remember, all funds have internal expenses. Even Vanguard funds, Fidelity funds that are considered no loads have internal expenses because that's the, that's the expenses for just running the operations of the investment for, Paying for the trading costs, paying the person that is, you know, structuring up the technology to place the trades and so forth, the printing costs, all the legal fees. All funds have internal operating expenses, so you can't get away from them completely, but you can minimize and mitigate them as much as possible. So go to a site like Morningstar so you can see. But here's the other thing I would encourage you to do: when you start typing in the name of the fund company of the fund that you have you'll notice quickly it will populate with all the other share classes that are available of that same fund company. Go through them and look at the internal expense ratio as well as the front-end commission on those. And then if you find a cheaper one, it's like, say, an institutional share class or something like that, call your advisor and ask them why they didn't sell sell you that one. I mean, I think that is a hard-hitting question to say, why did you buy me this more expensive share than what was available over here?
1: So if I'm an investor listening to the show, Brian, and I and I am hearing this thing about this A share, B share, C share, is there an easy way when I get my statement to tell if I'm in a fund or what share class of a fund I'm in? I mean the,
0: just look on the statement and it'll say C L and then it'll have a letter after it. I mean that really is that easy. And that's gonna also give you the ability to go test it out. Um I would tell you one of the big things I like you know, and we we work. I, I want to tell you, I'm not picking completely on the commission companies because realize one of the biggest bond funds has been around. Made press all over when Bill Gross left Pimco. The biggest bond fund previously before the separation of of Bill Gross from Pimco is Pimco Total Return. Pimco Total Return is a commission fund company. We have used that in most of your good 401ks, and we've used it for years. The difference is we bought the institutional class. The institutional class was approximately 40 basis points or 0.4%, if you don't speak um, investment language, but 0.4% cheaper on the ongoing internal expenses. With and, no commission, And right? you didn't have to pay the, the 3.75% front-end commission either. So there's nothing wrong with the way these fund companies, the investments that are with them. It's just I'm trying to help you mitigate what those front-end expenses are, and then even the ongoing expenses. But don't let those sunk costs. If you paid the commission, because we had that question just last week. Somebody said, I've got these commission funds. I paid 5.75%. I really hate to walk away from them when I've already paid that big, steep commission. I'm like, well, look at the internal expenses. If you have a fund here that, yes, it's it's okay at 0.66%, but I can go buy you the Fidelity Spartan, Index 500, the S and P 500 at point one percent, or Vanguard, or you name what you want. It doesn't, There's it doesn't take. There's fifty a long basis points back that, that. Yeah, it's a awesome. half a percent savings, and um, I think that's something you definitely have to look at. Number three, annuities. Oh, this one, by the way, this really is where the SEC had a great little thing. I was just doing some searches, and I found the SEC site. And their publication they right. had on variable annuities, really good stuff. Even if you have your variable annuity and you like your variable annuity, go make sure you understand all the different components because the SEC did a good job of laying it out for you. I might even see if um, Kaylee can put a link back or Gabe sure. can put a link back when, that, when they're working on the show notes. But realize there's four types of annuities. The, the two primary things that, that break them out are fixed annuities, meaning they just go promise you a, a paid, um, pretty much guaranteed rate of return. It's going to be in there and. Like, we, we dealt with one in the last week or so that was at 3%, I think, you know, so that, you know, sounds low, but, uh, where we are with interest rates. Certainly better than cash. Better than what you can go get in cash. You got variable annuities, which will basically say we're an annuity, so we're going to offer you the benefits of, you know, lifetime income payments. We're going to offer you a death benefit, all the components that make up an insurance product. Tax deferred growth. And tax deferred growth. But we're going to give you the ability to invest in sub accounts which um, lets you buy into stocks, lets you buy into bonds, lets you do a diversified portfolio and, and spread that money out. So that's what a variable annuity means. The variable comes into play is that the, the value of the account can fluctuate depending upon how good the investments do. And then you have immediate and then deferred annuities. Immediates obviously start paying immediately, meaning you start taking something out of um, what you invest into the, the annuity. The deferreds meaning that you essentially are getting a little bit of a sweetener by waiting to some point in the future to let the account grow before you start taking assets out of it. So the benefits that they really market these things off of is, you said it, tax deferred growth, um, lifetime income payments, and then a death benefit. Because a lot of annuities will have a death benefit where you usually at least guaranteed to get back what you put into the investment.
1: Let's start with the first one, Brian. And just because I can't help myself. What is one of your biggest pet peeves in the entire financial universe that we see all the time when a prospective client comes to us
0: with some sort of annuity? The one that really burns me up, I, I'm not a violent person, but it does make you want to kind of punch somebody in the mouth, <laughs> is when you do see somebody gets sold an annuity within an IRA or a 401K. When I see them in 401Ks, I'm like, okay. Either the guy who sold him this is his brother-in-law or a really good golf buddy. Because that's the only way he could have ended up being sold something like this. Because realize, here's the problem. Even, and I thought this was funny on the SEC website, it even has a big box that says CAUTION. IRAs, 401Ks, and other employer-sponsored retirement plans, they grow tax-deferred just by the sheer fact of the way they're structured by the government. They were designed to be tax-favored instruments created under sections of the tax law to grow tax-deferred. So when you put a tax-deferred vehicle like an annuity in an already tax-deferred vehicle, there is no benefit. But there is something extra. There's a lot of fees because nothing's free. There's no free lunch. The benefit with IRAs and 401Ks is that they get tax-favored by the way they're... Structured under the law, the annuities, you're paying a lot of expenses and fees to get that same benefit within the annuity structure. So don't, that double dip structure is horrible. You'll know if you, if you have a vehicle, if you have an annuity within a retirement product, somebody sold you that. It was not because they were trying to do something in your best interest. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the SEC website said. It said, please realize that for most people, You need to max out your IRAs and your retirement plans with your employer, like your 401K, before you invest in variable annuities. Because that is what it it really sells. You know, that's when when it probably does play into a person's portfolio is when a variable annuity, a person who has maxed out their IRAs, they've maxed out their Roth IRAs, they've maxed out their 401K, and they still want to have tax-deferred growth, yeah, then maybe an an annuity makes sense. Sure. Understand that um, variable annuities have these charges. This is the list that I got. Pulled this right off the SEC website. Surrender charges. Surrender charges mean they control your behavior, meaning that if you buy an annuity, if you want to get out of it, you may be stuck unless you want to pay a a, a deferred fee, a surrender fee. And they can lock you down for six to ten years. So, so pay attention to surrender fees because those are big ones, and that's usually why they can offer you some type of guarantee because they can control your behavior. Sure. Now, the good news is if you do buy an annuity or some type of insurance product, the SEC had this on their website too. Typically, insurance companies will give you a 10-day look-back period, meaning that you have 10 days from the time you sign the paperwork. That if you decide that you know you lose some sleep and say I don't know that I made the right decision, you can unwind it and get your money back. But you have to act very quickly if you did get sold something. And you've actually had to do this in the past, right, Ron? Oh, yeah. I had a widow that inherited a close to seven-figure 401k, um, and she was sold at the local Chick-fil-A. I kid you not, that's where she met this gentleman. Um, a equity indexed annuity, and... I was horrified when I found out because this is a person that was going to need to pay off some debts and to to probably have some, she had some medical things and other big expenses coming up. She was only going to be able to get access to, was it 5%, 10% of the principal without having to pay these huge surrender fees. It was just highly inappropriate to have that much money. And plus, remember, tax deferred money going into an annuity, not the greatest thing in the world. So we were fortunate that we were able to save her and unwind that. And probably make a pretty mad insurance agent because I, I bet he was going to retire for the rest of the year off of that commission payment. Um, variable annuities also have mortality expenses. That's usually around one and a quarter percent on average. That's right. I said one and a quarter percent annually on average. Admin fees, it could be around 0.15 percent a year. Underlying fund expenses, meaning that when you buy into a variable annuity, they usually will have sub-account fees on top of these other fees I'm talking about for the investments. So that's why when you see that they have a sub-account like Vanguard, it's not the same fund as a Vanguard S&P. Go look at the internal expenses on the disclosures they give you and then go to Morningstar and compare, Mm -hmm. and you usually find it's not the same thing. And then there's fees and other charges. If you got a stepped-up death benefit, they charged you for it. So go understand what you're paying for that. If you got a guaranteed minimum income benefit, it wasn't for free, they charged you for that sweetener. Go make sure you understand that. If they put a long-term care rider on there, they charged you for it. So make sure you understand everything you're paying for with these. And if you got a bad deal, because we do have clients come to us, have annuities. They paid all the fees. They're kind of stuck. You know, they're not in a tax-deferred, so we can just roll them out. They're just standalone annuities. We do what's called a tax-free 1035 exchange and send them to some of the low-cost providers. Charles Schwab, Fidelity, they all have, um, I think even Jefferson National has some products that really cheap. Even some of them strip out some of the things. They let them get rid of the mortality expense. Um, there are ways that you can do a 1035 Lower the fees. We don't sell insurance, so we're not insurance salespeople, but we do help clients sometimes roll them to very low-cost annuity providers so that they can keep them intact and not trigger a tax tax gain. Uh,
1: And one thing that you did say, Brian, if you are someone who you go look at your statement, you see that you do have an annuity held inside of a 401K or an IRA, that type of structure – if you've passed the surrender period, there are often times where you can do where you can process an IRA rollover and you can as, essentially escape the annuity. So you're not stuck at something you'll want to talk with your advisor, unless he's the guy who sold it to you, about to see if that might be something that makes sense for your situation.
0: So the fourth one, Bo, I wanted you to kinda of talk about this one the cash value of life insurance. What if somebody sold you a whole life or something that has a cash value on the life insurance policy.
1: Yeah, we see this so often when someone will come to us and they'll say, "Hey, you know, I bought this life insurance policy 10, 15 years ago and I've been paying into it for nearly two decades now and I just I don't know if it was the best decision." But, I'm pot committed. I've been spending so much on this thing, I fade into it. What do I do? Um, and the answer is, is it's not one size fits all. There are a couple different things you have to look at to determine if you either, one, keep paying on the policy, two, surrender the policy, or three, allow the policy to pay for itself. Those are really the three big options you have. Um, unfortunately, it depends on the company that sold the whole life insurance because not all whole life or universal life or variable universal life or permanent insurance policies are created the same. The thing you want to check into is you want to know, how much is this costing me every year? Um, now, there are a few different things that go into the cost. You need to know the cost of insurance. You need to know the cost of the underlying investments, the cost of the commissions, and then any additional expenses like uh, mortality uh, mortality expenses in there. So basically, you know exactly what it's costing. And then what we do for our clients, depending on their age, is we try to do uh, a side-by-side analysis where we look at, okay, what is this costing versus what's the benefit, the accumulation value, and the death benefit. Versus what would it cost to just go buy some term insurance and invest the difference? Um, Now, obviously, if you are a little bit older and insurance is a little bit more expensive, it's a harder thing. But generally speaking, whole life insurance doesn't have a fixed premium. So every year, the cost of that insurance is getting more and more as well. Um, The other option that a lot of people look at is maybe I just want to have paid up insurance. I can take this policy and essentially allow it to self-sustain. The two questions you want to ask your advisor are one, is this eating into my cash value, and is the cash value paying for the insurance, or is the cash value big enough that the dividend I'm receiving on the policy is covering it? You just really want to understand what's going on with the policy so you can make the best decision on how to move forward. Unfortunately, it's not a black and white. It varies situation to situation. If you are someone who is a little uncomfortable with your current policy or you don't know uh, what the best move for you is, you may want to think about talking to a professional advisor just to get an unbiased third-party opinion.
0: Yeah, I would. Um, the three things I took from that: get a tax analysis on the, see, so you know where if you how bad I have a tax situation. If you did surrender, it was also know what the alternative would cost, like term insurance, and then figure out if you can do a paid-up component to it because maybe you don't need to make any more insurance payments whatsoever one word of caution if you are going to replace it with term you always want to keep your insurance in effect until you've been approved and have the other insurance bound because there is a problem make sure because you never know if medical issues have changed or something like that so be careful so that leads to the last thing because a lot of these things we just talked about on these lemons to lemonade moments a lot of times you didn't necessarily get to these places all by yourself. Somebody might have sold you or recommended these things to you, and that might that leads to the fifth and final point that I had was working with the wrong professionals. Um, when we talk about CPAs, I come from a background in public accounting, did tax returns for many, many years. Here's what I would encourage people, and I still have the same mindset when I'm working with people as a financial advisor too. When I was doing tax preparation, I would try to find enough deductions that I would pay for myself through, you know, cover my fees through those additional deductions and tax savings. Um, I think that that's an important thing. If you've got a transactional relationship with your CPA, meaning they're never offering you suggestions or trying to find you additional legal deductions, you might want to think about that because they need to be your consultant who's going to help you navigate those tax waters. So if you're not having that type of relationship where you feel like they're a, a consultant that's always looking out for your best interest, it's more of a transactional where you show up with a, a box of shoebox full of things and they give you a tax return you might want to check into that a little bit so not all cpas are created equal and not all
1: services provided by your accountant are created equals what I no I'm you just
0: you need to look but when you find a good one you'll know it and you it, the, the an accountant is going to be as long as well as a financial advisor and it's probably a great transition point will be the quarterbacks especially the financial advisor to your financial situation now financial advisors We like and we are fiduciary advisors. You know, fiduciary advisors have a legal obligation to put your interest ahead of their own. It's not a suitability standard. That's the difference between um, a a registered investment advisor versus a broker-dealer. You know, registered investment advisors have fiduciary standard if they're with the SEC. Broker-dealers have what's called suitability, meaning that are you just okay for this product? Do you qualify based upon your income? Fiduciary has to put your interest ahead of their own. It's not necessarily a sales type thing. So I would look at that when you're talking about somebody who's working with you. Then we're partial, even on the fiduciary side of things, to fee-only advisors. I like people because then you're sitting on hopefully the same side of the table, and it removes as much of the conflict of interest. Believe me, there's still conflicts of interest like paying down debt and other things that you need to make sure you understand, even working with a fee-only advisor. But I think it does remove as many as possible. Insurance agents. I, I, my thought on insurance agents, I've worked with quite a few. I like the ones that, and this is good, because I love working with young people. But I like my insurance agents to kind of be fat and happy. Because what I have found is, is that you've got something, somebody working in a product that is very profitable. If you find somebody there is something extremely liberating with somebody who has enough money that they don't have to sell you something. Um, We have a client that we've referred business to in the past, and one of the reasons I like working with him is because he doesn't need any more money. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous to say out loud, but I, I find him to be so liberating that he will tell you what type of insurance he likes and what he doesn't like based upon what he's done in his own personal life. And and I think that is something incredible when somebody has that much money that they can do that. And be honest,
1: I think it's hilarious when he, we've actually seen him say this to some of our clients before. Hey, I can say this and I'll make five or six thousand dollars, but
0: I wouldn't buy it if I were you. <laughs> it's true. It's a he pretty doesn't. incredible thing. So I always and I I know that's count- and I, I'd shop insurance rates. Here's what my thing on insurance: go price it on the internet if you're doing term insurance, go price it on the internet. But then I like people to buy it from a local broker. Realize most states regulate insurance so much. That there's not much of a price difference between what you get, if there is even a difference at all, between the Internet and what the broker is selling. The difference is something goes wrong, you've at least got a live body to talk to versus just a 1-800 number. And, and I, I get nothing for that because we don't sell insurance. It's just advice I've seen from working with people who work in the insurance and then also working with clients who have unfortunately lost loved ones or even passed away themselves. It's nice when you can call and hold somebody accountable to help you through the process.
1: If you are someone who's in the process of either shopping uh, your personal insurance, so that's like your life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, or if you're someone who's shopping your property and casualty, um, home and auto, umbrella, that sort of thing, uh, we like to recommend going for non-captive agents. Now, there's nothing wrong with an agent that works for a company and the only insurance they sell is for that company. Some of the largest advertisers on television are captive insurance agents. We like working with an independent agent who has the ability to go shop five, six, seven, eight, ten different companies, look at the different products offered by the different companies, show those to you, and allow you guys to arrive at which product from which company makes the most sense, not just the
0: product that they're the most familiar with because they're the company that signs the paycheck. So hopefully something we shared today, has put you in a place where you feel like you have a direction of action. You have some action items you wrote down, or you have at least a friend or family member that you're listening to. You go, hey, I remember they've had, they've talked to me. They've had concerns with that. Go point them out to this show. Send them out to moneyguy.com to know where we are. And then if you want to reach out to us directly, because remember, we do work with clients all across the country. You want to take the relationship to the next level. You can write us directly. You can write me, that's Brian, B-R-I-N at money dashguy.com or Mr. Bo Hanson, bo at money-guy.com. Um, but if you'll reach out to us, we'll see how we can help out. And then once again, just thank you for continuing to be a part of our family and being tied into this. If you have any suggestions for the show, you're also welcome to send those to us. Otherwise, we're going to talk to you in about two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management.